Good morning. How's everybody today? Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of kicking off this five-week mini-series that we're going to be looking at uh, myself. Uh, Tom's going to be preaching a few, and we're even pulling in uh, Pastor Marvin all the way from Lansing back to us in a couple of weeks, so that's pretty exciting. Woo! Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're going to be taking a little detour from our John series um, to look at uh, the beautiful life, new and improved. So we're actually going to take some time to uh, uh, detour away from the book of John. When Jim gets back, he's going to go back into the book of John. But we want to take a look at what some of the new and improved aspects of the beautiful life are. What are some of the new and improved desires that we have as a result of this beautiful life that Jesus has offered to us? Now, uh, this seems like the appropriate time to be talking about something that's new. Uh, We are just a few short weeks after the Resurrection Sunday the day when all things were made new, thankfully due to Christ's death and especially and ultimately his resurrection. We're also uh, in the season of new and that in North America we are in the season of spring. And uh, it doesn't look too, well, I guess it does look like spring out there today. Uh, but uh, the green grass coming up, uh, the beautiful smell of the uh, blossoms on trees, uh, flowers coming up through the ground. And so it's the season of new and we want to talk about what, is, what are some of these new and improved aspects of the beautiful life. Now, speaking of new and improved, my buddy, Pastor Jim here, I thought we'd do something new and improved. (laughs) But what is it about new and improved that connects with us so much, right? What is it about new and improved that makes us stand up and take notice? Uh, Just this past week on Thursday, I went over to Meyer. And uh, I did a little bit of shopping. And uh, uh, if you walk down the aisle of uh, pretty much any aisle there in in Meijer, you're going to find all kinds of products that claim to be new and improved, or at least new. And there's something about those products that makes us kind of want to say, ooh, I I want that, like um, new and improved Dynamo. The the funny thing was that this was uh, basically uh, the exact same package as the one standing right next to it, uh, but it had new and improved on it. Uh, we've got um, new star-kissed tuna in a bag now, I guess. Uh, everything is new, right? New scrubbing bubbles. We've got even new almonds. Didn't know that they made almonds any different than they did, you know, a thousand years ago, but they do. Uh, new dog food, uh, new ways to clean up after your pet. Uh, there's, everything is new, right? And there's something about that that obviously marketers know connects to us. I mean, why would you get the old one, if you could get the new and improved one, you know? We all want that. We all love new. That new car smell, hmm? I've never experienced that myself, but I'm sure someday I will. Uh, you know, a new pair of shoes that you can lace up and instantly you can run faster and jump higher than you ever could before. Uh, I'm kind of weird, but I like a brand new pair of socks. Something about a brand new pair of socks, putting them on just, ooh, feels nice, right? You know, we all kind of long for this new. Now, now what is it about that that connects to us? Yeah, on the one hand, I suppose it's a bit of just the fact that we're selfish consumers, right? I mean, we always want what's best for us. I always want the newest, latest, greatest. There's something about that idea of consumerism and selfishness that draws us to wanting the new, the best, But I think that there's something uh, even deeper. 
I think there's something at the core of who we are as human beings that makes us want something new and improved. Because in our quiet moments, when when we're alone with ourselves, we know that we're not who we were intended to be. When we're alone with ourselves, we know that we are not who God originally wanted us to be. And so we desire new and improved. We, we want it. Uh, last year, I was uh, telling my wife that I wanted a new and improved waistline. And so she said, oh, you should try this new DVD series, Insanity. Uh, any workout DVD series that's called Insanity uh, probably should have been a tip-off that I shouldn't have tried it. Uh, I got about 10 minutes in and uh, turned it off, realizing um, that uh, uh, there was no false advertising there. Uh, all of us try all kinds of weird things, right? I mean, uh, um, you know, some people shoot poison into their face called Botox, right? Some of us actually buy things called Spanx. Some of us try all kinds. We, we all want something new and improved, right? And we're willing to try whatever it is to get there. If it's, you know, Pilates or this or eating organic or, you know, heaven forbid, doing something really radical like eating vegetables or, you know, stuff like that. I mean, we all will do whatever it takes to try to be new and improved because I think at the core of who we are, we long to be what we know we were intended to be. And at our core, we know that we're not. I think that's the draw of new and improved. And I want to take a look at a guy this morning who wanted to be new and improved, who knew that he needed to be new and improved. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Genesis 32. That's actually where our main text is going to be this morning, but we are going to spend a little bit of time looking a a, a few chapters ahead of that. Uh, But before we can even jump into that, I, I think it's important just to have a real quick history lesson. So let's just take a minute and go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? God creates mankind in his own image. You and I, we are the, the pinnacle of his creation, all right? And uh, uh, Adam and Eve uh, um, are created, and, and uh, the serpent comes and fools them. Uh, they listen to the serpent, and they sin. They rebel against God. And uh, the fall happens, and, and literally ever since that moment, this longing inside of our souls to be what we are not, this desire to be as how God originally intended us to be, it's there. And it never goes away, all because of that one choice from Adam and Eve. And a few generations later, things get so bad that God decides he's going to reboot the entire world. And so he sends a flood and saves one family, Noah, and his family. And then a few generations after Noah, God decides that he's going to call out a nation for himself, starting with one man, Abram. And he's going to call this nation out. And this nation is going to be, if they follow his law, they're going to experience this new and improved, beautiful life. Not only are they going to be able to experience it, but they're going, or we're at least supposed to, offer that to the rest of the world. And so Abram is called out by God. He says, okay, he obeys. By faith, he goes to the promised land. God changes his name to Abraham, father of many. And uh, uh, then he has a son. Now, it's not his first son but it's the son of promise, Isaac. And uh, Isaac uh, grows up, and uh, he gets married. Isaac's name actually literally means laughter, which is kind of interesting, because when uh, uh, Sarah found out that she was going to have a baby in her old age, she started laughing, (laughs) like, you're kidding me. 
So Isaac comes along, laughter, and he and Rebecca, uh, they uh, get pregnant, and uh, they have uh, uh, twins, or at least she's pregnant with twins, and uh, we find out that something kind of weird is happening uh, with these twins, and so she actually goes before God and inquires about it. I guess um, the twins had been uh, wrestling around inside of her womb in a way that seemed just beyond what is normal. Okay, now obviously I've never experienced what it's like to have twins wrestling around in my room. There are uh, days that I look like I'm in my second trimester, but uh, that's not uh, uh, the same thing as what my wife and many others have dealt with. Uh, and this was more than simply just a, a kick in the gut or, uh, you know, a punch in the belly. Something was going on. And so Rebecca inquires of the Lord in chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 22. says, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now this is a a change from what normally would be. In ancient Near East, it always would have been that the older was the one with whom everything would carry on. In this case, though, God reverses it. In fact, it's not the first time God has done this. God has actually done this with Isaac as well. Isaac wasn't the firstborn to Abraham, but he was the son of, of, uh, he was the chosen son. So uh, the same thing is happening here. So verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Picture Jim Samra as a baby, okay? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm sure Jim won't hear that. Uh, they named him Esau, all right? Esau literally means hairy, okay? In the ancient Near East, a lot of, most of the time when you were named, you were named after something that described you specifically or uh, described your character. So Esau is hairy. Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. The name Jacob literally means one who grasps the heel. It's another way, though, that the Hebrews would say somebody who deceives, a supplanter, a trickster, somebody who thinks they can take matters into their own hands. Seems like kind of a weird thing to name your son, but that's what they named him. He was named after not what he looked like, but his character, what he would act like. And he lived up to his namesake. You see, what we find is that uh, as the two boys grow up, Esau is the tough hunter kind of a guy. He goes out into the uh, wilderness, and he hunts game and brings it back. And uh, uh, Jacob uh, was a guy who liked to hang around the tents. Uh, They say that Esau was really hairy, and Jacob was smooth-skinned. And uh, Jacob just kind of lived up to this name, this idea that he's a deceiver, one that kind of takes matters into his own hands. You, You ever know anybody like that? They just are always scheming, trying to get the best deal on this, or they're always trying to figure out the way to make things happen. Well, that was Jacob, okay? Kind of like the, uh, the poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That, that's exactly who Jacob was. And uh, in this particular uh, time frame, uh, Esau goes out, and he's hunting, and he comes back, and he didn't catch anything, okay? And he's starving. And uh, Jacob's been back. He's been making some lentil stew, and, and he comes to Jacob, and he says, Oh, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry. Man, can you give me something to eat? And, and Jacob says, sure, I can give you something to eat if you'll give me your birthright. Now, the birthright was basically a double portion uh, of, uh, 
uh, of the inheritance. So uh, if every kid would have gotten uh, one piece of the inheritance, uh, Esau, who had the birthright because he was born first, would have gotten two pieces of the inheritance. And Jacob says to him, hey, I want what is rightfully yours, and you're hungry, and I've got some soup, so I'll tell you what, I'll hook you up with a bowl of soup, you give me your birthright. Now the Bible does tell us that Esau, says, despised his birthright. Why, we don't exactly understand or know. All right, but we do know that Jacob is showing that he is exactly what his name says he is, the one who tries to make things happen his own way, in his own time. And so he finagles the birthright away from Esau. So that doesn't make Esau real happy as he realizes later on that he just gave away his house for a bite of Snicker bar. All right, that's basically what, he, what happens here. And uh, um, so he's not uh, real happy with his brother. Um, but the second most important thing, or actually the most important thing, uh, wasn't the birthright. That was the second most important thing. The most important thing was the blessing that his dad would have given to the oldest son. Okay? It was the blessing of promise. Uh, that came from Abraham on down to Isaac, and then Isaac was planning on giving to Esau. So uh, Isaac says to Esau, Esau, I'm getting up in age. Okay, I want to give this blessing. Now, the blessing was literally spoken out of his mouth one time for all. It wasn't the kind of thing that you can say once and pull back and give to somebody else. It was a one-time blessing said, and that was it. And so Rebecca hears that Isaac is going to give the blessing away to Esau, and so she goes to Jacob, and she says, Jacob, I want you to go out into the, the uh, pasture. I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to bring it in here. I'm going to prepare some food just like your brother would make. We're going to put some of the lamb skin on your arm. How hairy do you have to be, by the way, to actually put lamb skin on your arm, and that's going to trick your dad, okay? But that's what they did. So she makes this, uh, uh, this, this stew with the, with the lamb, and um, Jacob brings it in pretending to be his older brother. And he gives it to his dad, and his dad, uh, who can't see well at all, says, please come, come here, I, come closer to me, I want to smell you. And, and he smells that he's kind of like been out in the field. And he says, Esau, my son. And he says, yes, I'm here, Dad, <laughs> it's me, Esau, da-da-da, Esau. He, he says, come closer, and he, and he rubs his, his arm, and he feels the hair, and, and he eats the food, and, and he gives Jacob the blessing that's intended for Esau. Total deceit. Total deceit. Jacob steals what is rightfully Esau's. Now, just in Hollywood fashion, Esau comes back minutes later. And he walks in after grilling this food that he's caught, and he brings it into his dad. He says, Dad, Esau, your oldest is here. I'm here for the blessing. And he says, Isaac's like, what, what are you talking about? You're here for the blessing. I just gave you the blessing. He's like, what do you mean? I wasn't here. And they both realize they've been duped. The deceiver, the trickster, the one who takes matters into his own hands, had duped them and had stolen the blessing. So Esau, of course, is ticked off. So he's like, I'm going to kill my brother. And at this point, I don't think it's one of those like, I'm going to kill you. I mean, literally, he was going to kill him. So Rebecca finds out. She says, Jacob, you need to run. Jacob flees to her hometown and starts working for a guy named Laban. He works for Laban for 20 years. He marries two of Laban's daughters. God's blessing is on Jacob. Even though he's the guy that is, thinks he's doing everything to better himself, that he's taking matters into his own hands, he's always the guy with the answer, he's always the guy with the plan, God is behind the scenes and he's blessing him. So he has a number of children, servants, his flocks increase and get bigger and bigger, and Laban's sons, Jacob's brother-in-laws, they don't like this very much. They're like, man, that's supposed to be our stuff. 
Every time that he helps out with our dad's flock and then things get born and he winds up getting some of them and all of his stuff is doing great and our stuff's not doing so good and this isn't right, this is supposed to be ours and so they're kind of ticked off at him and they don't like him a whole lot and Laban is kind of giving him a hard time too and so God comes to Jacob and he says, hey, Jacob, I want you to go back home. And he gives him this promise. He says, I'm going to be with you. I want you to go back home. I'm going to be with you. So Jacob says, well, I guess that sounds like a pretty decent idea. You know, these guys over here don't seem to like me too much. But hello, 20 years ago when I left, my brother wanted to kill me. And it's not like they've got, you know, email or even U.S. Postal Service or even Pony Express. Uh, He hasn't talked to his brother in 20 years. And last time he heard, his brother wanted to kill him. But things aren't looking so good here. God told him to go back home. He says, okay, fine. I'll go back home. So he starts off heading back home. And remember, God has promised him that he was going to be with him. You see, but Jacob's the kind of guy who likes to take things into his own hands. See, he doesn't trust God fully. So what Jacob actually does is he sends uh, a bunch of uh, four different uh, flocks of animals ahead as a peace offering to his brother Esau. Because he sent off a messenger. The messenger came back and said, hey, Esau's coming to meet you, and he's got 400 men with him. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a very good thing if you're going to meet your brother who wanted to kill you 20 years ago, and he's coming back with 400 armed men. So he sends these peace offerings ahead, trying to figure out, like, okay, maybe he'll feel better about me because I'm giving him some, you know, animals. Maybe he'll feel better about me because of all these extra things I'm going to give to him. And, you know, if nothing else, well, at least all these animals are going to slow him down, and at least we'll hear him coming, you know, with all these goats bleeding and cows mooing and everything else. So, you know, maybe I can get away if he does decide to attack me. But then he takes matters into his own hands again. He says, instead of trusting God, he splits his family up into two groups. He says, uh, this part of my family, I want you guys to go over here, and this part, you guys go over here, because that way if, if, uh, if Esau does attack, then he'll only get you know, one of you, and the other, one of, the other group can flee. And we come to Jacob now, the day before he's about to meet his brother, in chapter 32. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. You see, the guy who's always got a plan, the guy who's taken life by the chin, the guy who's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, Jacob, is running out of options. He does his most cowardly thing yet. Verse 22, it says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That was the stream that he was there. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Jacob actually takes his wives and children, and he uses them as a sort of human shield for himself. He brings them across the river, and he says, you guys camp here, and he goes back to the other side. Now, if you're alone all by yourself, and you're actually realizing what is playing out? How would you feel? I, I have to believe Jacob was beginning to ask some tough questions to himself. And in this moment, God actually shows up. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, it seems kind of weird in the story up to this point. You're like, okay, is this Esau? What's a man coming and wrestling with him? He's supposed to be alone. The purpose of saying that he was alone 
and then a man showing up to rest with him is, we find out later in Scripture, Hosea 12 actually says this is an angel. Uh, in some translations, it says an angel of the Lord. Uh, there are some scholars that think this might be uh, the angel Gabriel or, or another one of God's angels. Some actually believe that this was actually pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, that Jesus himself came and wrestled with Jacob. The text isn't clear. We really don't know. All we know is that it was a supernatural being sent by God to be God's mouthpiece. And so Jacob starts wrestling with this man. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled, uh, as he wrestled with the man. Um, there's two things that are going on here. The, the first is that this is a very physical fight, okay? Uh, any of you guys ever wrestled before? High school, college, something like that? Playing around with your nieces or nephews? I wrestled my senior year of high school, and, and, and I got to tell you, I thought, you know, uh, back then, oh, I'm in good shape, I'm pretty strong, I could probably wrestle okay. Uh, and so I went out for the wrestling team, senior year, never tried to wrestle before. Uh, my very first time of getting on the mat, okay, uh, I, I'm about to step onto the mat, and uh, I see the guy across from me that I'm about to wrestle, and I'm sizing him up, and ah, I can probably handle that dude. And uh, my buddy comes up, and he says, are, are you wrestling him? And I said, yeah, 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 I'm wrestling him. And he said, oh, dude, he's never lost in his life. Good luck. <laughs> he runs back. <laughs> and so we started wrestling, right? And, like, that's not the thing you want to hear your very first wrestling match, right? So I'm wrestling this dude. And, I mean, wrestling is kind of like running a marathon and lifting weights at the same time. Like, it's super intense. And uh, uh, I was doing so well by the end of the first match. I was actually winning three to two. Uh, and then the second uh, period started, and he pinned me, <laughs> like, instantly. Uh, I couldn't handle it. I wasn't good at wrestling because wrestling takes so much effort, strength, energy, uh, uh, stamina. It takes all of that. And what is happening here in the story is that Jacob is exerting all of this stuff. It's a very physical fight. And he's actually doing pretty good. He's hanging with the supernatural being. You say, well, why in the world did this angel, why did this angel let it go on for so long? I mean, obviously, the angel could have overcame him. At this point in Jacob's life, he's 97 years old. He's not a spring chicken, okay? The angel literally touches his hip. Boop. And his hip is ruptured, the Bible says. A tendon blown up. His hip out of socket. You see, it was more than simply a physical fight that was going on. There was a spiritual battle going on as well. That this angel of the Lord, God wanted Jacob to realize, you can't do this. You can fight me all you want. You can wrestle with me all you want. But look, man, in the end, you've got to come to the point that you realize at a heart level that you need me, that you need me completely. Verse 26. This to me is, I think, the most beautiful prayer ever uttered by the lips of a human being. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, I remember the very first time that I heard this. Uh, well, okay, it wasn't the first time that I heard it, but the first time that I heard it. Okay, I was a freshman 
in college. I went to a, a small community college my freshman year called Jordan College. Uh, Jordan College actually had a campus up in Cedar Springs. Uh, the campus that I was at was one in Flint. My dad worked there. and um, So I went to this college, and uh, uh, oddly enough, they offered an Old Testament survey class. So I thought, yeah, that sounds fun. I'll sign up for this Old Testament survey class. So I'm in it, and uh, um, within the first few weeks of the class, my professor read us this story. And I remember the first time that I heard it, I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding me. Like, this is the most arrogant <laughs> prayer I've ever heard in my life, right? I mean, like, Jacob is hip blown out, laying on the ground, holding on to this angel's leg. He can't do anything else, right? And the, the angel says, hey, man, you got to let me go. The, the sun's coming up. I got to leave. And he says to him, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. It reminds me of the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There's a scene where uh, uh, one of the guys is trying to get past this bridge, and there's a knight there guarding it, and he says, you're going to have to fight me. And so they fight, and boom, he lops off one of his arms, and it's, it's laying on the ground, and he's like, ah, tis but a flesh wound. And so they fight some more, and boom, lops off his other arm, and boom, lops off his leg, and the guy's trying to headbutt him on one leg, and boom, locks that off, and he's laying there, sitting on the ground, just a stump, and, and, and he's yelling at him, come back, I'll bite your kneecaps. You know, and, and, and as, he's, as the other guy's walking away, he shouts over his shoulder, all right then, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> and that's kind of the, 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 the feel that you have right here with Jacob. Uh, he's laying on the ground, right? And he can't do anything. And he's holding on and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And that's kind of what I thought it was. Like this some arrogant dude's prayer. And it really kind of makes sense when you think about his name, right? Like he's the one that's always got it in control. But this isn't an arrogant prayer at all. This is not that prayer. This is a prayer of utter humility. This is actually a prayer of Jacob laying on the ground, holding on to the leg of God and saying, God, I know who I am, and I know who you are, and I've got nothing else. If you don't do something in me, with me, through me, I'm toast. And I love what the angel says to him next. He says, what is your name? Jacob. It's like for the first time in his life, he says his name out loud. I am the messed up one. I am the deceiver. I'm the one who thinks I can take life by the throat and make it do what I want to do. I'm broken. I've got nothing. You see, this is... I think the most beautiful prayer in the world because it's a prayer of a man who recognizes exactly who he is. Nothing before God. And recognizes exactly what he needs. And that's everything in God. And I love what God says to him next. <laughs> God takes his name, Jacob, the deceiver, the one who thinks he can handle everything, and he changes it to the name Israel. Now, there's a number of different uh, understandings of what Israel might actually mean, um, but one of them is that uh, God fights for you. So he goes from the guy who wrestles with God, the guy who is the deceiver who thinks he can handle life all by himself, to the guy who God is going to now fight for, the guy that God is going to come and lead. Uh, the reason that this verse was so meaningful to me is because uh, something that had happened to me uh, the week that uh, I first um, really heard this verse. When I was in high school, uh, I started dating a girl. 
Um, we, uh, we dated the end of my sophomore year and uh, up through my junior year and my senior year. And, and I, uh, um, I, we were both solid Christians. We loved the Lord. In fact, uh, she was one of the ways that God had got me serious about my faith. I hadn't been serious about my faith up until the middle of my sophomore year. And as I was there uh, um, uh, in this relationship, uh, it started to uh, um, fade from what does God want me to do is what does she want me to do? <laughs> so uh, uh, I decided that she was the girl I was going to marry. Hadn't really talked to God a whole lot about it, but it seemed like, uh, you know, a good idea. And uh, um, so I talked to her. I said, hey, who would, you, what, what, who would you like to marry? And she said, well, I thought I'd like to marry a businessman. I said, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so uh, even though I had sensed my senior year that God might be calling me into ministry, I decided I was going to go into business. So I went to uh, college, and I signed up. I was a business major in college. And uh, I had even spent $350 on a hopeful ring. Now, we couldn't call it a promise ring. We were way too spiritual for that to make a promise, right? But we called it a hopeful ring that I had spent. And that's a lot of burgers at McDonald's, people. And that's where I was working, $350, okay? So I had given her this ring. I had my life mapped out. I was going to go to this community college for a year. After that year, I was going to transfer to the school that she was going to. I was going to be a business major, be a businessman. We were going to get married after my junior year of college. I had everything mapped out. It wasn't like I was some rebellious punk. I wasn't. But uh, I didn't really care what my folks thought what my pastors thought. At that point, I really didn't care a whole lot about even what God thought. And uh, God had been trying to tell me through some various little circumstances, but I, I wasn't very good at listening. So it was a warm September day. I was, uh, it was a Saturday. I was sitting in our backyard. In our backyard at the time, we had a pond, and there was a little floating dock out there, and I was uh, on the floating dock laying out thinking that life is awesome. My awesome girlfriend is down at college, and I'm in college, and everything's great, and everything's going according to plan, exactly how I mapped it out. And uh, uh, my mom comes out on the deck, and she says, Tori, because that's everybody called me Tori back then. She says, Tori, uh, uh, your girlfriend's on the phone. And so, like, I dove into the water like a torpedo, you know, like Mark Spitz. I had a mustache back then, too, just like him. So I went all the way up to the dock. I ran up the stairs, grabbed the phone, still dripping wet, and, and, I, and I get on the phone. Hey, hey, baby. Just for her to dump me. <laughs> she, she says to me, I, I just feel like I need to... I just feel like I need to not be dating you anymore, and uh, um, I really feel like I, you know, I need to kind of, you know, see what else is, might be out there. She probably used some terrible line like, you know, hey, variety is the spice of life, or something awful like that. Um, and, 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 and then she even told me, hey, I, went on a, I actually even went on a date last night, and I just thought I, 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 you ought to know, and, and I was rocked. I mean, I was rocked at my core. I went upstairs to my room and I sobbed. I sobbed like a little baby because she was the anchor that I was tying my life to. And everything that I had built up was all revolving around that and it was gone. And I remember being up there and crying out to God, what is going on, God? I don't get it. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. My entire life... And that's why this verse meant so much to me. Because I became like Jacob laying on the ground, my hip out of socket, holding on to his leg. And I said to God, I said, God, I need you. I have nothing. And so I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I have no place else to go, God. And so that day I started hanging on to his leg. Three years later, still clinging on, God brought this cute little Filipino girl to Cedarville University. And we started dating and Four years after that, we got married. 
Now, nothing against this girl that I dated in high school. She's a nice girl and all. But like she can't hold a candle to anything that my wife has. All right, I'm just telling you, God knew. It wasn't that, I, 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 that she was bad over here. It's just that God knew he had something so much better. If I would simply let go of my own desires, my own plans, and hold on to him. And that's what I want to say to us today. Who are you wrestling with? What is it that you're unwilling to let go of? Who are you holding on to? What's the anchor in your life? Is it a job? Marriage? And let me tell you, it doesn't matter if you're a high school graduate. Speaking of our high school graduates, I'm going to ask you to come forward right now along with the elders so we can pray over you. It doesn't matter if you're a high school graduate. You guys can come on up right now. It doesn't matter if you're a high school graduate. It doesn't matter if you're 36 years old like me. It doesn't matter if you're 56 or 86. The beautiful life that God intends for us is only found when we hold on, hold on, lie down, and hold on. And if you're holding on to anything else, you're not going to experience the life that God has for you.